listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, not speaking for the university, not representing its uh, pirates back-to-school plan or anything else that we're talking about here in the summer of 2020, just speaking for myself and likewise my guest tonight will speak only for himself, no other organization or institution. It is uh, June of 2020, the end of our season here at Civil War Talk Radio. It's a beautiful day today, uh, the day to digest the plan coming out for the fall of how we're going to restart uh, university education, but we'll talk about that in August when we come back. It's also the day the governor of North Carolina has finally gotten around to requiring people to wear face coverings when they're out in public as the uh, coronavirus is still with us and not getting better. Uh, And indeed, my family members were out at the supermarket today and lots of people not covered up. Uh, uh, It just seems common sense. Do do what we need to do. Let's get this thing over with. In Chicago, in contrast, where I was a few days ago, uh, lots of people were were well covered and hopefully more will be. I was there because I was taking my daughter Maria back to her apartment. She came here for a brief visit. And on the way back in the car, we talked about podcasting and influencers and uh, all kinds of social media things because that's what she uh, does, uh, uh, works in social media public relations uh, for a living, and I discovered that I am a a, a niche micro influencer. That uh, when I mention a book, and some of you email me, stop doing that. I'm spending all our money on books. Uh, I guess I'm influencing people to buy books. So uh, apparently, I'm part of the the modern world boomer that I am. I'm also a micro influencer, and you uh, uh, in the Civil War Talk Radio community are the the are being micro influenced even as we speak I guess uh, interestingly last May was the biggest month ever for uh, listenership to the show if the numbers are be are to be trusted uh, last uh, the, the best month in terms of raw numbers previous to this was 72,000 September 2019 I'm not sure 72,000 watts hits downloads, People who accidentally saw the website, I have no idea, but but it's a number, so we go with the metric, and uh, we the show has only broken 70,000 once, that was September 2019, and then in May, uh, 92,000, went right over the 80K barrier, beyond 92,000. Maybe there's a typo, maybe they'll fix that next week, but in any case, to all of you who are listening, thanks very much for doing so. It was great to go up to Chicago. I lived there briefly in the 80s. Uh, my wife and I both lived there. We loved the city. I got to uh, spend a couple of very fast hours uh, playing fiddle tunes with uh, Eric Zorn of the Chicago Tribune and his son, Ben. Uh, they are both musicians. Ben is an awesome musician. Eric's pretty good. Uh, but it was really fun to play, play old-time music with them. And then on the way home... Uh, driving home alone with no one to to stop me, I tried to scratch the itch of Civil War battlefield visitation since uh, tours, of course, have been canceled this spring. And didn't really have a plan, but as driving down I-75 through Kentucky, saw the sign for Richmond and immediately recollected that was the battle in late August 1862 during the invasion of Kentucky. Bragg was coming up. Uh, you, you know the story, the race to Louisville, and uh, Edmund Kirby Smith was leading the secondary invasion, and he got into a skirmish, really, with uh, Bull Nelson's force at Richmond, in which 
three quarters of the Union troops ended up surrendering. So uh, got to walk around the preserved part of uh, the battlefield, uh, nicely preserved. Apparently, it was just empty land uh, outside of, of development for for until just a decade ago and then somebody started building they built a housing development and a golf course so you can play at battlefield golf club if you want to do that and that spurred people to try to preserve what was left and they've done a very nice job so if you're ever heading south on i-75 stop in they do have a visitor center but it was closed the uh the covid epidemic has closed a lot of things including many visitor centers so i learned something about richmond i learned i made a mistake in my book, All for the Regiment, where I referred to a right flank and I should have written left flank. Uh, I would have known that if I'd visited the battlefield earlier. And continued on the drive further south on I-75, uh, made one more stop, saw the sign for Wildcat Mountain. Thought, okay, that's October of 1861. Union uh, encampment attacked by Confederates. Sounds interesting. Let's go see what they have. Pulled off the interstate, Wildcat Mountain, three miles. Okay, that's not far, I'll just drive. Turn the corner and go into a gravel road just wider than the car, definitely one lane. Uh, and then, so I don't know what happens if someone's going the other way. And started driving, and it was three miles at 15 miles an hour because it was so narrow and you could only see 20 feet ahead before a steep. Uh, incline or a sharp turn Uh, and at the end of the three miles which takes a while at 15 miles an hour you get to uh, a beautifully preserved little oasis in the middle of absolute nowhere uh, with interpretive signs and uh, pavilion and some artillery pieces some hiking trails and you get a sense of what the terrain must have been like you talk about preservation uh, one of the most interesting interpretive signs there compared to Union soldiers' comments, one said, this place has everything a nature lover could want uh, because it's just completely unsettled. And someone else, another Union soldier said, this is the most desolate place I've ever seen. And I would say they're both right. Uh, it's really uh, quite a place. So not no one else was there. I don't know if anyone else ever goes there. Uh, but the U.S. Forest Service keeps it up. It's not a Park Service site. It's in a national forest, so the Forest Service does the interpreting, uh, which I didn't even realize was a thing uh, until seeing it. So two sites worth your uh, worth your, your driving. If if you're on the Camp uh, Wildcat or Wildcat Mountain Trail as you go along, I will say it's exactly three miles like it promises. But there were times I was thinking, you know, how do I get out of here? How do I, is there going to be a place to turn around? It was worth doing. Anyway, uh, last item before we start, very quickly, the uh, update here in Pitt County, North Carolina, the Confederate Memorial is no more. It's been taken down. The pedestal is gone. The commission acted quickly after their meeting two weeks ago. I need to correct what I said last time. I gave the impression more people spoke against uh, preserving the monument, then spoke uh, uh, in favor of, of keeping it there. And in, that just uh, was the impression I got at the time. In fact, looking at the meeting on video, I now see the numbers were about even, but uh, all of those of us who spoke in favor of removing the monument were visible uh, using Zoom. And all of those opposed uh, were not visible using telephones. And that may have led me to get an incorrect impression of the numbers of each. Uh, finally, the committee has the, the county has formed a committee to decide where to relocate the monument. And I've been asked to serve on the committee. So I will continue to update you with what's going on with the Pitt County uh, Confederate Memorial uh, when we come back next season. Which we'll do in August. You can find out, as always, when we're coming back and who's coming back by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org, kept up by Mark Gaffney, who also keeps up the Facebook page of the same name, Impediments of War. And that's where you'd find out, for example, who we're talking to tonight. Uh, It's an unusual book. Last week I said the book was unusual, uh, the book about the Hunley, because I 
read it all practically in one gulp, which I don't normally do. Uh, This week's book was unusual in that normally when I'm deciding whose books we will talk about, uh, I'll wait till I have the book in hand. I'll look through it, you know, check the footnotes, get senses this right. Uh, will you enjoy this book? Will you and I both enjoy it? Will we both benefit from it? Is it worth our time? Uh, you know, if you've listened long, I don't invite people on the show to trash their books. Why waste time with bad books? So normally I, I wait till I've seen the book. This week, when I heard of the topic of the book and learned a little bit about the author, I told the publisher, yes, let's do a show on it, even though the book hadn't even been published yet. And uh, I had to wait for it to come out. It just did. This is June of 2020 that we're talking, and it's just out in the last month. Uh, And I'm happy to say the book didn't disappoint. It's called America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. The author is Kenneth R. Rutherford. He's a professor of political science at James Madison University. Uh, professor Rutherford, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? There, there we go. Yep, got you on. Um, the, the, may I call you Ken? We, we've been corresponding by first yeah, yeah. Is that okay? And, and please thanks, call thanks me Jerry. Thanks for having me on. I've listened to your show. It's a huge honor that you invited me, so I appreciate that. Well, I... I, I it was very serious when, when uh, the publisher, Savis Beatty, uh, contacted me. They often send copies of books uh, re- that I'll review, and some, some make it to the show, some don't. When they told me the topic of this book, I thought, man, no one's ever done that. And uh, I just read a little bit about it and said, we've got to do that as a topic. Uh, you obviously have an extraordinary personal interest uh, uh, in the topic. Let me just start. You know, with the elephant in the room, it, is it possible to be to, to write about a historical topic where one has such an abiding personal interest? Can, can you distance yourself enough to, to write about it? You know, appropriately. Um, that's a that's a really good question. For me, it was the passion of landmines. I heard your introduction where you had mentioned mm-hmm. that I lost both my list. you know, a little bit over twenty five years ago, and. Uh, my dream was to be a professor and sign up on a George Shannon and all that and getting involved in the campaign of landmines. And I've published, written a few books on landmines around the world, Africa, Asia, the Middle East. Um, never, ever knowing about the use of landmines in the Civil War. And I grew up in Colorado, but I was a big Civil War fan. My parents took me to Gettysburg and Vicksburg and and then I uh, had no, I'd never connected landmines in the Civil War at all until I left uh, my position at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, where I was on the Wilson's Creek National Battlefield Foundation, moved mm-hmm. to the Shenandoah Valley, and uh, joined the Shenandoah Valley Battlefield Foundation as a trustee and started traveling the battlefields, you know, just taking exits off the freeway like what you did on I 75. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, I stumbled across a way marker in Henrico County outside of Richmond, Fort Johnson, where they said that landmines were used there in 1864. And I was stunned because in 2010, I had a major book come out um, about the global landmine issue, talking about Afghanistan and Iraq and Somalia, where I was. And I've been to Iraq a couple times. And I stopped and I took a photograph of that. And that changed the next eight years of my life with the passion of not only being an academic, um, but a landmine survivor. And I pursued it for the next eight years, day in, day night, and day in, day at night. And I tell you, mm-hmm. my kids and my wife are the happiest people in the world <laughs> that this book has come out. Um, so back to your question about could I separate myself? Um, I do feel like that I've... I probably publish more on landmines than anybody in the world, at least any academic in the world. This is my fifth book. But this is my first that was a passion of love of the Civil War and the landmine issue. And when I started digging into shocked and stunned to realize that landmines were used in more than 20 places around the South during the Civil War. 
Well, it really is surprising reading this. To you know, I think many of us have probably come across a reference here and there, maybe seen a, a photo of an artifact. Uh, but to see how widespread mm-hmm. it was really was was eye opening. We're going to take a short break now and come back. I want to ask about the the research process, how you went about learning about this topic, and that's the thread we'll pick up when we return. Uh, We're talking tonight with Kenneth R. Rutherford. He is the author of America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We're talking tonight with Kent Rutherford. He's the author of America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. Uh, Ken, you pointed out that you, know, you, you for the last eight years, you've been focused on research for this book. Uh, where do you find material on this? How, how did the research process work for you? So I start off um, you know, doing some Google, looking at some discussions, and I would find names of battles or people's personalities. And of course, I couldn't reference any of that in my books, but that was the sort of the, uh, evidence for me to start pursuing this. So I, um, in terms of visits, I went to probably nearly all 20 battlefields, except Vicksburg. My minds were used in Vicksburg, didn't get there, but I had a chance to go to all of them over eight years, go into people's houses, talk to rangers, walk the battlefields, ask them for recommendations on soldiers' letters back home, uh, reports, um, really dug into the official records of the War of the Rebellion, um, probably a good 15 pages in my bibliography was just about that. It was produced as official records of the War of the Rebellion, but um, in the book, probably have over 100 pieces of evidence and official records and uh, local hometown newspapers. I counted over 20 news- local newspapers I read. The New York Times had reporters embedded with federal forces in 1862 in Yorktown and in 1864 in December when federal troops crossed from Georgia, Savannah, into South Carolina, all the way up to North Carolina. So I used a lot of the New York Times reporting, sort of like the New York Times reporters embedded in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I was invited into people's homes, relic hunters. I actually touched Jerry to me and mine, <laughs> a Civil War landmine um, in somebody's home in suburban Atlanta. Um, and also what was very helpful was the archives at West Point, the military museum at West Point, mm-hmm. and in the basement 
it hosts, I believe, 12 or 14 water mines on a shelf out of public view um, where I got to take some photographs and I studied them and I, they have uh, index cards written about each of these water mines and two of them were used on land. As the Civil War progressed and the Union stranglehold the coastal positions of the Southern defenders, these water mines were later used on land outside of Richmond at Battery Wagner in 1863. And so that was another pursuit of this uh, issue. The, the, yeah, I could go on and on, so just cut me off. But anyway, so it, it took forever, but I had a chance. James Madison University was so helpful. I was giving speeches, mm. academic speeches, where I get funded for. And then I was allowed, like, say, in Atlanta to go down to Fort Blakely in Spanish Fort in Alabama or Fort McAllister in Georgia um, to go into the museums. Actually, Fort McAllister State Museum at Fort Callister has a landmine in it, a real one and a dummy one. Um, and uh, and uh, historic Fort Morgan outside of Mobile, Alabama, has a, has a replica of a sea mine that I found was later used on land outside of Richmond. Uh, the Richmond Battlefield Museum has a landmine in it. Um, so I could go, just go on and on. There's about 20 photographs in the book. It was really hard to select the photographs. Most of the photographs mm-hmm. are ones that I took. But also a very helpful piece of information was the Harper's Weekly illustrations. Mm-hmm. And I used a couple of them in the book. One is the first landmines ever used in the Western Hemisphere was in 1861 in Columbus, Kentucky. Um, there are zero casualties, but Harper's Weekly really covered that. There's, a whole, there's two illustrations that Harper's Weekly uh, carried of federal forces clearing Confederate, and this is important, command detonated mines. These were mines that are detonated by the human, uh, by, by the human operator and there are zero casualties because the Confederates withdrew from their positions at Columbus after Fort Donaldson fell. So uh, you, you the may- first active land, the first victim activated mine was used the next year at Yorktown and Harper's Weekly carried an illustration of that as well. Um, and that is the cover of my book. So anyway, you mentioned, I'm sorry, I went on and on, but the bibliography was about 25 pages deep. We edited down to 10 or 15, I believe. We just said the official records of the War Rebellion, but all the footnotes carry all the letters and correspondence. And Jerry, if I could just say one more thing about sources. Sure. Is most of the official sources that I could find were all Union. Were all Union. The, uh, the Southern side... There were letters from General Raines, Jefferson Davis, but Jefferson Davis did not want the records of how to make landmines, how to make IEDs replicated because he thought they would fall into federal hands and they don't, they, I quote, they would understand our devious devices. Um, mm-hmm. In addition, some of the Union higher command stated that if they catch any of the Southern soldiers or officers using landmines, which they thought was an immoral weapon, a weapon beyond the pale of civilization, that those operators and leaders would be executed on site. So the, some of the Southern soldiers and officers who were using landmines did not want to carry written information on their body. And then third, when the Southern, when the Confederacy created a landmine bureau, it was called the Torpedo Bureau, which was codenamed the Conscription Bureau, too, with $100,000. Um, uh, those records were burned in the evacuation of Richmond. Those were purposely burned, I found. Some were accidentally burned, like inadvertently when the fire spread through Richmond, but for sure the, the, the secret service files were purposely destroyed. So my research came from the Union side. It came from uh, Union soldier letters and also a few pieces of correspondence from Southern leaders or generals and officers who were outgunned and outmanned as the war went on, asking for the services of the Confederate Torpedo Bureau. We need your men here. We need your skills to help defend our positions or use it to delay pursuing federal forces. So just for terminology's sake, the, the Torpedo Bureau, uh, you point out that torpedo is, is a contemporary term that we, for what we would call a landmine or, right. or a naval yeah, mine. Right. The, 
Yeah, so their uh, landmines were initially called torpedoes, an explosive device. Um, the Union called them infernal devices. Uh, some of the uh, Confederate soldiers called them subterra devices. And this is all a catch-all term for an explosive device that is buried beneath the soil, which today we call a landmine and also an IED, an improvised explosive device. Um, now, you mentioned converted artillery shells. Yeah. So you mentioned that that some Union officers uh, you know, found the Confederate use of landmines, uh, you know, beyond the pale, not not part of civilized warfare, and that that reminds us that, that we're talking about the 19th century, and killing the enemy was not seen as as the goal of warfare; it was incidental, but simply shooting a a sentry, for example, was was mere butchery. It didn't help win a battle. Uh, so that was considered illegitimate. Uh, when mines are first used, uh, for example, in the Peninsula Campaign in 1862, were there some Confederate officers who who were reluctant to use mines in that process? So that's a really interesting story. It's about six or seven pages in the book because this is really a moral dilemma within the Confederate high demand, uh, high high command in May of 1862, when on May 5th, many Union soldiers were killed and maimed by landmines in Yorktown and on the road from Yorktown to Williamsburg, uh, where Mm -hmm. Confederate soldiers used mines to delay the pursuing federal forces. Um, And General Johnston and General Longstreet were very upset that their soldiers used these weapons, and they found out about it through, a, through the New York Times, carrying um, quotes from General McClellan that he was using, he was going to use Confederate POWs to clear the mines in Yorktown, and that these were more immoral, dastardly devices, immoral. And so General Johnston and um, General Longstreet were very upset by that. And uh, General Raines, who was in command of the soldiers laying the mines, um, made an argument that the union is also cheating. They're, they're digging under, they're using real mining, digging under trenches and laying explosives. They burnt his hometown, New Bern, North Carolina to the ground, uh, which is not entirely accurate. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, at the end of the day, Jefferson Davis and the higher command ruled that landmines would be okay to use when it was defensively necessary. And that happened, that was for like the spring and summer of 1862, by November of 1862, all the Confederate high command was in on landmines. We need them. Here's $100,000. Pull General Reigns into Richmond and set up the Confederate Torpedo Bureau. Um, and so the, the, the moral dilemma was rapidly outweighed by military necessity. And that moral dilemma no longer existed on the southern side. You mentioned uh, this is General Gabriel Rains. Uh, his brother George Rains, who created the Augusta Powder Works, uh, came up in last week's discussion. The book was about the CSS Hunley, or the the submarine Hunley. It wasn't a commissioned ship. Um, and Gabriel Rains was 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 Mister Mine Warfare for the Confederacy. Is is the impression I get from your book? Is that fair to say he's the the godfather of, of mine warfare. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. He, he was one, he was one of the, the main, well, okay. I would agree. He is the, really the godfather of the Confederate landmine program. Mm-hmm. Um, however, as the war continued, you had pockets of inventors who were desperate to defend their hometowns, desperate to protect their positions who I could find no connection to Gabriel Reigns. For example, General Gardner at Port Hudson, the longest siege in U.S. military history, uh, used command detonated and victim-activated mines. Those are, that's the only time in the Civil War that both types of mines were used in the first time in the world that I could see, that I, could, that I know of, where command detonated and victim-activated were used in the same battle. And then you had a group of Yankees in Texas, in Lavakia, Texas, developing the Freetwell Singer uh, water mine and land mine. Uh, Singer was the nephew of 
Singer then ventured the first commercial sewing machine. And those mines became very popular in the waters in Mobile, Alabama, and other areas in the Confederacy as well. So, but yes, General Gabriel Rains was the first and only head of the Confederate Torpedo Bureau Service and believed in explosives. His brother, George, as you mentioned, of the Augusta Powder Mill, if you visit their home, which still exists, their boyhood home in New Bern, there's a North Carolina State historical marker outside their house, and it's called the Bomb Brothers. <laughs> uh, they're both you know, I... by explosives. They're, they're called the Bomb Brothers, and they both went to West Point, both geniuses in their own right. Um, and you know the story of George, George Raines, who's an incredible man in terms of what he did, producing gunpowder under desperate circumstances. And his brother, Joel, uh, Gabriel, who we're talking about, he invented landmines in a way as a force multiplier to protect his men. Let me ask about the technology of these mines. You mentioned that there are both command-detonated and, and victim-activated mines, two different types. Um, talk about the technology. How, how do these mines work? What, what, did they, what did the Confederacy make them out of? So the, for in, in the, first, uh, the mines that caused the first casualties in Yorktown were actually buried artillery shells. Um, and they put a primer uh, on the buried shell, and it was concealed by dirt. There was a mix of tripwire mines, which are still victim-activated, and mm-hmm. uh, pressure mines. I know I'm probably getting a little bit too detailed here, but those are all mm-hmm. buried artillery shells. Um, and they're attached um, to either a tripwire or they have some form of primer with an artillery shell. Um, when Gabriel Rains, uh, about six months, seven months later, end of 1862, beginning of 1863, was funded by the Confederate Congress to continue the development of landmine warfare, he developed um, what's called the, Ra- the Rains Fuse. And this was um, sort of a glass little tiny glass capsule with a 50% potassium um, chloride, 30% trisulfide, and 20% glass in a tube that when stepped on below the dirt, it would break and then ignite the powder. Um, so that was the range fuse, which was used throughout the war um, by the Confederacy. Um, in Port Hudson, there's a lot of UXO inside Port Hudson. UXO is a term called unexploded ordnance, where <laughs> the uh, malfunction rate of Union artillery coming into Port Hudson over 60, 90 days, um, and the Confederates were running out of ammunition, they converted a lot of the Union UXO within their positions in the hand grenades and both victim activated and, um, command detonated mines uh, using Union artillery shells with other instruments. They planted Union artillery shells outside their trenches. And so when the Union would come, they had a cord through the dirt, through the walls of their trenches, and would pull the cord. And they used other Union UXO with trip wires. So um, it, it really depends, and that's why it's such a beautiful, I don't know, it, that's, it's probably the wrong word, but such a fascinating story about mm-hmm. landmines in the Civil War, because every region, every battle is so unique. There wasn't a command from above. There wasn't a mass email. There wasn't a Facebook posting of how you use them. It was all from the ranks. It was from the roots of the soldiers, desperate to find ways to defend themselves, and to protect their positions, and if they had to flee, had to delay uh, oncoming federal forces. So So they... I'm sorry. I was going to say, nearly... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, nearly every single case, Mm -hmm. landmines were used by Southern defenders in one of two ways. A defensive position or to delay pursuing forces. I could only find two cases in the whole Civil War, there's probably more, but this is what I could do in two years, where mm-hmm. nuisance mines were used. Port uh, Nuisance mines were used in Spanish Fort, Alabama, and Yorktown. When some, when some, of, the, some of the federal 
casualties in Yorktown were lifting like the top off a flower barrel or picking up a coffee pot and getting blown up due to a tripwire. And in Spanish Fort, four years later in 1865, landmines were used around watering holes leading in to the Spanish Fort and Fort Blakely positions. Now, the reason that's important to me personally is around the world today where you have over 80 million landmines, many of the landmines being used today are for nuisance purposes to purposely destroy civilian life. ISIS, let, let me, the let, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, go ahead. I'm going to step in because that's a really important point. And I'm, let's take a break now and start on that point uh, in the next segment because I, I definitely want to ask you about that. Uh, we are talking about mine warfare and about the book Buried uh, America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War, written by our guest tonight, Kenneth R. Rutherford. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Kenneth R. Rutherford, author of America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. Uh, at the end of the last segment, we were talking about the difference between mines as part of a defensive position uh, or used to delay pursuing forces and mines used simply for harassment, for nuisance, uh, what we might think of as booby traps where you, as in Yorktown, Virginia, 1862, the Confederates left explosives attached to innocent looking objects uh, to harm Union soldiers. Uh, Ken, you make the point that this is a legacy not just from the Civil War, but continues on into the 21st century. You said there were as many as 80 million landmines still planted around the world? At, at least. Uh, when I was injured in 1993 in Somali to a landmine, uh, I, in that year, um, according to estimates from the United Nations, there were over 105 million landmines planted in 62 countries. And wow. most of those countries were at peace. That would equal about one landmine in the ground for every 50 people on Earth. Um, and during the 90s, that's when the State Department, I did some work for State Department in Bosnia and some other places, Iraq. Uh, 26,000 people a year were being maimed and killed by landmines. In fact, more people have been killed and maimed by landmines than chemical, biological, nuclear weapons combined. Um, and so that, for me, that was like one of the big takeaways from this research is landmines in the American Civil War was the first time in the world's history that landmines were used in a widespread basis ever. And now it's a great killer. It's the number one source of our casual, combat casualties 
overseas. And this is a story that hasn't um, been written. So I was really shocked and stunned um, by that. Now, are landmines still being deployed by military forces today? So that's um, so. In 1997, was an international treaty to ban landmines. That whole campaign won the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. For a while, about 10 or 11 years ago, more landmines were coming out of ground than going into the ground. But with mm-hmm. the rise of ISIS, some of the issues in the Congo, Colombia, uh, more landmines are going into the ground now. In fact, when I got involved in the early 1990s in the landmines work, um, Colombia wasn't even a top 10. And now they're like number four for hosting landmines. ISIS took it to a whole different level. They improvised tens of thousands of explosive mines in artisanal manufacturing facilities. And their idea was that we can't control the land. Nobody else is going to control it without blood loss. So they planted a lot of landmines in northern Iraq and Syria. They also laid secondary landmine devices where if we would, Jerry, you and I would go and clear a mine, it was purposely set where we would find it, but that a secondary vice that would take us out. So a lot of the yeah. miners and EOD personnel have been wiped out because of ISIS. Yeah. I also read somewhere there are still uh, thousands of mines in the Falkland Islands from the 1982 war. Uh, it, it is, and unfortunately, the, well, unfortunately for everybody, the Argentinians used Spanish landmines, which are a high-quality landmine, in hmm. the peaty soil of the Falklands, they have a long life. They could live to a hundred years. You know, these were Chinese mines, you know, they would rapidly deteriorate. They would have Mm -hmm. a strong aging effect on the explosive and the shell. So, um, yeah, those are, those are going to be there for a long time. There's the UK government signed a treaty of landmines and it's their legal obligation to clear those landmines. And it's costing them a lot of money. Now, I, promised my wife I would ask this question as well. Uh, you had the opportunity to work with uh, and meet Princess Diana, who made uh, the removal of landmines one of her causes. Uh, was she as uh, endearing a person uh, uh, to meet as she appeared in, in the media? So um, this is my opinion. I chance to work with her in D.C., escorted her around Bosnia, which was the last working week of her life. I was during a State Department contract, August of 1997. She died tragically in Paris a couple weeks later. Mm-hmm. Um, had a chance to go to Kensington Palace a few times. Was with her sons two years ago at the 20th anniversary of her passing. They made an HBO documentary, and they wanted me in it. Um, you could tell your wife and for the listeners out there, Princess Diana was the real deal. She identified with people on the margins. Um, I, I, this is just my personal feelings. You won't read it. Mm-hmm. I never interview with book authors. I, I talk about it. Her family's given me permission to talk on an educational purpose, non-monetization value. Mm-hmm. Um, she identified with people on the margins. She was the first one celebrity to touch somebody with HIV AIDS at a time where we thought touching skin with each other on HIV AIDS would spread. She touched people with leprosy. She worked with landmine survivors. I got to meet her in June of 1997 when her divorce was final at the Royal Geographical Society, where I gave a speech with her. And a couple of weeks later, she came to D.C. to the American Red Cross. And Elizabeth Dole, future senator from North Carolina, was head of the Red Cross, invited me to speak. And she said, I want to join your cause. Because at the time, I was focused on landmine survivors. I could not believe how blessed I was as an American to lose my legs have great medical care, have the wind of America's great medical system beneath my wings. Believe in the Lord, mm-hmm. my beautiful girlfriend stayed with me. We now have four kids. I asked her to leave me. And when my head hit the pillow at night, I couldn't believe, like, all oh, these people around the world without legs, what do fathers do? And we can meet no opposition to s- support victims, but nobody was doing anything. And she was the first person, this is what I told Prince Harry and Prince William here two years ago, your mom grabbed our hand and said, let's go to Bosnia. Let's go. We invited her. Let's go. Um, And she spent three days in this newly emerging country with millions of landmines emerging from war, going around Bosnia and meeting survivors. You go to Google or or wherever and look at videos of that trip of us walking to meet survivors. And she could have been anywhere in the world. And she was truly a people's princess. 
And so my, and I, she also diverted from script. I've met with a lot of, I've worked with a lot of celebrities in different parts of the world. I could tell you, Princess Diana, she said what she believed. She would have prepared remarks, go off script. She was very uh-huh. unconventional. And I think she had nothing left. Um, she she had had to work with the media. The media used her. They chased her to her death. They pursued her everywhere. They jumped out of bushes. She told me personally that she jumped out of bushes <laughs> when she would walk through parks. Um, wow. But she was tough. And um, so that is why. i just tell you a quick story. The day before the funeral, my wife and I went to the funeral, and Ted Koppel of Nightline followed me around London. It was the Friday before the Saturday funeral. So that was a Nightline piece in mm-hmm. London. Anyway... Uh, had a chance to meet Prince Charles and Prince Harry and Prince William outside Kensington Palace, their first public appearance in London. They come down from Scotland, and I had a chance to meet them right there at Kensington, looking at the flowers. And I read a card, and it said, um, Dear Diana, let me rephrase this. I think I know it from heart. You are one in a million. Thank you for treating us like human beings, not criminals. From David Hayes and all the lads at Her Majesty's Prison, Dartmoor. Unbeknownst mm-hmm. to the world and, and me and everybody else, she mm-hmm. has gone to a prison, Dartmoor, and called for better food and vocational training programs. And those prisoners put together money and they sent flowers to the palace. You cannot buy a flower in London on the day of her funeral when 7 million people lined the streets. So the landmine survivor, she escalated our issue around the world and really jump started an organization I co-founded with a guy named Jerry White, an American Lost Lake in Israel. And we ended up having six offices around the world to support prosthetics and mental health support and peer support for thousands of survivors around the world who do not have the benefits that we as Americans get here. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question or your wife's question. But, 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 but a, a wonderful one. Um, is, is there a, a website where listeners can go if they want to you know, support this or, or learn more about this? So uh, Landmine Survivors Network uh, closed down here. Uh, when I took the job at JMU, I ran a landmine center here at JMU. Mm-hmm. But a okay. great organization is two organizations for clearance. is Halo Trust out of Scotland and uh, Mines Advisory Group out of um, England. These are our former military, a lot of them are military EOD who clear landmines, humanitarian demining for civilian settings, in humanitarian settings. So um, let us, I, I want to pull us back to the Civil War before we go as we're running short on time. Um, the, were there civilian casualties during the Civil War from these landmines? So that is one of the, the questions I try to answer in the back of the book. Why weren't there more civilian casualties? And my conclusion is a couple. Many of the landmines were used at forts and battles that were in rural areas. Number two is um, the landmines themselves were not very well made. Say they're a modern type, modern Chinese mine, not very well made. So water would, would destroy the explosive device. But the third and the most important reason why there's not a lot of civilian casualties or were barely any, there were a couple, but on the scale of things compared to today, they weren't, it was not great, was nearly every single case, federal troops used Confederate POWs to clear their own mines. In some cases, made the Confederate POWs march in front of their men and march over the minefields they just cleared. Fort Blakely, Fort McCaster, Sherman's March, Spanish Fort, Yellow Tavern, Yorktown, Confederate POWs were forced to march or clear or both. So you get a pretty effective, it, high, high effective rate. <laughs> I mean, that reflects the, the anger that Union generals like Sherman and others felt at the, at the use of mines at all. Uh, they, they drew a distinction between just putting mines in the road, which I suppose would have a delaying effect, but uh, – you know, almost a nuisance effect compared to putting them in a fort where you're defending a fixed position. One one is a battle, the other is just killing a few guys. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's a big, big uh, mystery. You know, just I know we just got a little time, but one big mystery for me is you know Americans. Mm-hmm. We didn't face landmines again until World War One, and we didn't use landmines again until World War Two. 
70 years later. Um, so there so, so the, the legacy of landmine use doesn't continue. We didn't use them in a major way after the war, until the Second World War. That's right. interesting. We, we, we faced, up until this book project, I thought World War I was the first time landmines were used on a widespread basis when a tank was introduced mm-hmm. in 1917, and then the Germans created mines in 1917 and used them in 1918. Um, but now, as we just heard, like the past hour, uh, uh, they were used on a widespread basis in the American Civil War. Well, they, they were. There's a lot in this book that we haven't touched on, and that we won't have time to go into tonight. But another good reason why listeners will want to pick up a copy for themselves. Um, you have some some interesting things to say about naval mines, and that's that's a whole separate topic. Um, but I thought it was interesting. You make the point that in the guerrilla warfare, which is widespread, uh, insurgencies in Kentucky, Missouri, and so on, we don't see mines being used. Why? Why didn't Mines get used in that setting. That, Jerry, that's another big mystery for me. In addition to why there weren't civilian casualties, was insurgencies. And some of the ideas that I come up with are the Confederates, they only could make so many mines. They only had so much mm-hmm. technical expertise. And they're using them around Richmond. They're using them at key installations. Also, the engineering core of the Southern they had to impact. Mm-hmm. So by 1864, 1865, you're you're having officers in charge of engineering units who never had an enge- engineering education, and these were even though they're simple devices, they're still pretty complex. Um, mm-hmm. But I could find really no case where guerrillas or insurgents were using them. Um, I know some wanted them. I have a quote where some were being shipped to Kentucky from Illinois through a sort of a black market deal. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of professional units wanted the mines, and they just couldn't get the personnel or the materials. Well, there are many interesting aspects to this story. That is one of them, uh, among many. Uh, The book in which you can read about these listeners is called America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. It is the work of our guest tonight, Kenneth R. Rutherford. Ken, it has been a, a pleasure talking with you. Uh, thank you for all the work you've done to make the world a safer place. And uh, thank you for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry, I'm honored to be here. I've listened to your show. Uh, can't believe I'm following on the agenda. So thank you. It's an honor. And listeners, uh, as always, uh, wear a mask so we can get this over with. I'll see you uh, in fall of 2020. And thank you all for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.